0: Hi, thanks for downloading our sermon series from Church of the City in Guelph, Ontario. This sermon series, entitled Song of Songs, will contain adult subject matter and may not be suitable for all listeners. We wanted to give you this moment to consider the listening audience before proceeding. Again, thank you for downloading our podcasts
1: i one who I love to actually have the Bible in front of me when we go through our scripture readings together. So whether that is an actual physical Bible or your like digital Bible, I highly recommend that you are reading along with me this morning. Um, so if you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand and somebody will come and give you one. Um, and I say that because you might be listening to what I'm saying and because of the text that we're reading, you might be like, wait, what did she just say? Um, so I highly encourage you to be reading along with me. So we are reading um, in the first chapter of the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, which is, if you're reading in the Bibles that are being handed out, on page 560, the bride confesses her love. She, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Others, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. She, I am very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kadar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of their vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where your pasture flock, where you make it lie down at noon, For why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flock of your companions? He. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture with your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Others. We will make for you ornaments of gold, studded with silver. She. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. He. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are dove's. She, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of your house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. She, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, who would like to volunteer to read scripture over the next seven weeks? (laughs) Now taking applications. (laughs) Particularly week four. Um, As we have been doing, I'm going to ask you to to just quiet your heart. Uh, Let's ask the Spirit of God to do a work in our midst. And I would ask you specifically just to identify how you're feeling and then invite Jesus into that place, whatever it might be. And so, Jesus, I thank you that you are with us and that you want to do a work in our hearts. And regardless of how we are feeling, some of us are excited, some of us are intrigued by the topic. Others of us, God, are nervous, and others of us are shameful. We're filled with shame. So, Jesus, I thank you that you do not say, come to me when you've got it all figured out, but you come to where we are. And you join us. And your spirit empowers us. So we thank you. God's people said, amen. Well, from about the 1960s to the 1980s, there was a social movement. Can anyone guess what that social movement was? The sexual revolution, right? The sexual revolution. Now, you might wonder, what was the purpose of the sexual revolution? Mary Eberstad, in her book, Adam and Eve, After the Pill, writes this about the sexual revolution. It was, The destigmatization and the demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation In which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. Anything goes so long as those are consenting adults. The demystification, the, the, the demystification, the destigmatization, and that sex is reduced to hygienic recreation. Now, what this means is that there are some of us in this room that live through this time. But looking at a room like is in front of me today, I also can recognize there's a lot of us that have been born since the sexual revolution. And so for many of us, this is all we've known the demystification, the destigmatization. And I think that we could probably agree with one another that the sexual revolution worked. Right? That actually worked. Now, I'm going to ask the question well, what have been the effects of the sexual revolution upon our culture? From Mary Bauman's article, Sleeping Together Before the First Date. While the rule of thumb may have been to wait to have sex until a third date, 34% of singles have had sex before the first date, and millennials are 48% more likely to have sex before a first date than all other generations of singles. Additionally, almost 70% of singles approve of polyamorous relationships or sexual relationships with a deep connection with more than one partner, but only 6% have practiced polyamory. In a shocking documentary available on Netflix, I would provide an enormous warning, don't watch it. Um, you could, but of course be prepared, called Liberated, the New Sexual Revolution. Uh, the makers of the documentary explore what is the new sexual ethic of our culture. And women as suggested that as young as eight years old, they were asked, being asked for pictures of themselves naked uh, through their cell phones. And so the question that I would pose to us as we explore this series together is, is culture's vision of sexuality compelling? Because I finished watching that documentary and I said, well, if that is the option, I would want nothing with it. In um, an article titled, Why Millennial Sex Sucks by Naomi Schaefer Riley, I think we can all understand that in light of the Me Too movement, the consent has been thrown out the window. She writes this, Could sex for millennials get any worse? Late last month, researchers at Columbia uncovered a trend called stealthing, in which a man discreetly removes his condom during intercourse because he believes it's a man's right to spread one seed. According to the study, women are calling rape crisis hotlines with stories of this practice, and there are, of course, internet chat rooms devoted to it we can now add stealthing to the growing list of trends that make sex seem anything but enjoyable for young adults today and which seem to explain why millennials, believe this or not, are having less sex than any other generation in 60 years, according to a study published last year. Other articles that appeared in my search was, watching porn together is the new couple's therapy, and your boyfriend may fantasize about cuddling with strangers. Isn't that positive? Dating, the question of dating is, is filled with all sorts of new questions as well. I asked a group of young adults recently, what's the dating world like? And a single male said back to me, he said, Matt, it's, it's like trying to find a piece of hay in a bed of needles. Um, <laughs> yes, of course. Um, a guy, a, a female said to me, you know what's really interesting about Christian dating and non-Christian dating is as a Christian girl, I am asked out by a lot of non-Christian, guy, non-Christian guys, but the Christian guys don't approach me um additionally uh these women these christian girls said guys play the field only to hold out for what they believe is their best option now in summary all of this raises for us as i said some significant questions as there is so much confusion and i would say also frustration and we are asked and raising questions of what is our vision what is our human vision for sexuality for dating for marriage or how about for singleness What is even healthy sexuality? Should our sexual preferences be the defining characteristic of our identity? And what about what it means to be male and what it means to be female? And as I said, what about singleness? Because we need a compelling vision compared to the current cultural vision of singleness. Jesus was single. Seems to be a viable option. Now, into this cultural confusion, frustration, and pain, the song of songs speaks, giving us a vision of sexuality, intimacy, and relationships that stands in stark contrast to the view of sexuality in our culture. And as we study this book, I will continually ask us to consider the point. Is this vision compelling, or is the culture in which we live's vision compelling? Now, that said... Song of Songs is complicated, Uh, right from the get-go. I mean, there are those that interpret this book as being purely allegorical. So anytime you read about breasts, you're reading about the Old and the New Testament. Come drink from the breasts of the Old and New Testament. And you're like, that is really interesting. Uh, Early Jewish scholars uh, believe that the comparison is between uh, God and between Israel. Then Christians enter the picture and believe that it's actually about Christ and his church. Then there are those that take a narrative approach to the book, uh, believing that there could be either one or or two characters or three. So there are either a woman expressing her love for the shepherd and the king, who are the same person, or there's a woman expressing her love for the shepherd, because she's now part of the harem, and the king has taken her to be part of his harem, which is just a really fascinating plot line when you think about it, right? But as a result, I'm a little bit cautious to land somewhere, But if I were to give my indication of where I land, what I believe Song of Songs is, is simply a collection of love poems in the scriptures. And for us, as I said, they're a way for us to understand and explore the themes of intense desire, of seeking and finding, the joy of physical attraction, and also an invitation to the emotions that are associated with each of those things. That said, you ready to jump in? Verse 1, chapter 1, the song of songs. The song of songs, which of, which is Solomon's. Now, song of songs literally means the greatest song, the very best of songs. In other ways, I'm going to say it's sort of like saying this is the best of all of the songs that are out there. We then read, which is Solomon's. Now, historically, this book has been attributed to Solomon, but even if you go back in church history, that has even been challenged. And I'm going to take approaches that I believe that Solomon wasn't the primary writer of Song of Songs for a few reasons. One, the main voice throughout Song of Songs is that of a woman. Uh, The man's voice, as we're reading it, doesn't seem to be Solomon's himself. While Solomon is mentioned, he actually never speaks. If we look at the life of Solomon, Solomon had over 700 political wives and then an additional 300 women as part of his harem. The couple, if we understand them as a couple in the text, are all about each other. And monogamous committed relationship is the focus of all of these poems. Poems. I would affirm what P. Cotterill writes in The Greatest Song, Some Linguistic Considerations. He writes, The song is a collection of songs on a common and generally erotic theme, legitimated by the naming of Solomon, skillfully welded together both by illusion and by the repetition of key vocabulary. What this means is that Allman, he loved wisdom literature. In the scriptures, it also tells us that he wrote over a thousand songs. Does that mean that he could have written some of what's in Song of Songs? Absolutely. But he likely wasn't the sole writer, at least in my perspective and from my study. Now, naturally, when you think about who wrote a book, that can sometimes get in the way of actually understanding the text. So I don't want to focus too much on who wrote it because what that can do, as I said, is it can also not help us as it relates to actually understanding the text before us. So let's get into verse two, the beginning of our first poem. The voice of a woman. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oiled, poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. What we're presenting with is someone, a woman in this particular case, who is showing incredible initiative. And what she's wanting is action from the man. Let him kiss me. She wants to be kissed, for as she says, his love is better than wine. Essentially, it's better than taste. Now, the word for love here is the Hebrew word dod. It literally means making. So your lovemaking is better than wine, better than the taste, and it's also better than the fragrance of perfume. It's better than any scent. We read that your name is oil poured out. In this culture, in this language, name is the reference to the essence of a person. What we're reading about here is this person, this man, is bringing himself and allows himself to be known like oil being poured out of a vase. She then goes on in verse 4a to make two separate statements. Draw me after you. Let us run. Now, this is where the narrative twist can happen for some people. Because then we're introduced to the king has brought me into his chambers. Now, as I said, if you take the view that there's three characters, she's initially expressing the lovemaking desire for the shepherd whom she has known in her own hometown. The other view is that the king here is the king that's, that's in obviously his chambers. And so there's this, obviously this tension, like what a plot, eh? As I said, what I what I'm going to take the approach is that the king and shepherd are figurative terms, where the woman endows herself to the man with metaphorical roles that express ultimately her respect and her desire. Right? It's like women, like you, telling your man, "You're the best man in the world." You know, you're like a king to me. I don't know if you've ever said that, but you know, if you maybe go along with me. You can go along with me with the thought. You're the best. I don't know whatever words you're using for each other these days. Babe, you're the best babe. I don't know. Whatever it's going to (laughs) be. Essentially, she's saying and expressing this desire. Now, as I said, our approach to literature these days is to read narrative. Cautious. Do not read narrative. Simply read these are poems expressing ultimate desire of love. So what do we learn so far in this poem? Well, number one, it would seem that physical attraction and desire is good, what this means is that God made us to be attracted and to feel drawn to another human being. What we also understand about our lives is that we all have different tastes and desires. Some women prefer beards. Some people, some women prefer clean-shaven. This is normal. But we also have to know what is healthy related to our attractions. And what we also see is that, is that both male and female, we'll get to the male, but both male and female are to be attracted to one another. Contrary to the cultural acceptability of men being able to express their interest, women are welcome and encouraged to as well. You have to be ashamed of that, women. But what we also understand about physical attraction and desire is that physical beauty also has limitations. You can just study history on the changing def- cultural definitions of what is actually beautiful and what is considered beautiful. Beautiful. Physical beauty will fade, as I've maybe mentioned here before, but, you know, your nose and your ears never stop growing. Isn't that intriguing to think about? I mean, your physical beauty f- never will, will fade, and if you commit because of how you feel towards the way someone looks, they'd better not change, and your taste better not change either. Physical attraction, additionally, can be deceiving. Just, just because someone is attractive to you does not mean they have good character. As the real you is revealed as the inner you. So physical attraction, desire is good. Physical beauty has limitations. 4B. Now we read others. Now what do we to understand about this? This is a joyous response of celebration to the love expressed. But these choruses also serve oftentimes as mirrors of the woman's emotions. So she's expressed herself. These verses now act back as a mirror and saying, yes, the love that you desire is good. The man is to be celebrated. And we read, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly, do they love you. Essentially, this guy has been a good choice. You've chosen well in this particular man. And just to provide a common illustration for us is that this is what you and I celebrate at a wedding. And this is God's picture of marital love, which raises the question of what is God's design for sexuality, and for marriage. In Genesis 1, we read this about God creating humanity. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Within the Genesis accounts of creation, what we have is God creating things in complements. He creates the sea. He then fills the sea with creatures, swimming creatures, obviously. He creates the land, and then he puts animals in it. He creates the sky, and then he puts things in the sky. God then turns and says, I'm going to make something in my image that will complement me. And he creates you and me. He creates the male and female. Then God does something additionally. He gives Adam a compliment, a perfect compliment to himself. Genesis 2, verse 23 to 25. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the woman were both naked, And we're not ashamed. The union of these two humans, these two complementary humans, is described as one flesh. They are same but entirely different. The focus of this one fleshness, of being naked and not feeling shame, is then the focus of song of songs. So what do we learn here from the Genesis account of creation? Creation. God creates male and female to reflect his image and their union in marriage, their one flesh, to express love, worship, and joy for him in the world. What this means is that our union as male and female in marriage is not for the sole purpose of ourselves. It's for the purpose of glorifying and worshiping God. I oftentimes ask couples who I do premarital counseling for, who many now come in and have had sex before, I ask them, how do you think sex is going to be different after you get married from when you had it before? And they're like, well, I've never really thought about that question before. And I say, well, well, you know, before it means that you were committing, it was adultery or idolatry, you were worshiping sex. After you get married, your sex is going to be worship." You can do it and thank God for the incredible good gift that he has given you and that you can now experience and express your love for each other in a physical way. Ian Proven in his NIV application commentary writes this, "'Human love, including erotic love, always points beyond ourselves to the love that undergirds all of reality and whose presence alone all longing can be satisfied.'" John Piper, in this momentary marriage, writes, The ultimate thing to see in the Bible about marriage is that it exists for God's glory. Most foundational, marriage is the doing of God. Most ultimately, marriage is the display of God. It is designed by God to display his glory in a way that no other event or institution does. Now, you might say to me, Well, Matt, we don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. And we're born with attractions and desires that don't align up with this. So clearly, God has made us this way. But friends, that's not the case. Sin has affected us. The fall is the reason for these desires. On this side of heaven, post the fall, and prior to Christ's return, we will all experience feelings and attractions to things that are contrary to God's design. And he did not make us this way. Sin has made us this way. Therefore, as human beings, we have a choice. Do we reflect God in his image and design, or do we not? In Romans 1, Paul writes to the Roman church. He writes this, verse 25, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. You see, the turn happens. They don't worship the creator anymore. They worship the creature. They worship their own desires out of alignment with with what is God's good design. And we were created to reflect God's image to the world, and marriage was created to express love, worship, and joy found in God to the world as well. This is hard stuff. Let's keep going. Verse 5. She... I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Now, let me just state, there is a lot Of complexity to these verses. Culturally speaking, uh, there's there's no father, it would appear here, so the brothers are likely the ones in charge of the way in which this woman is going to express her sexuality. So some have suggested that this woman has known the love of the shepherd boy, and so as a result, her brothers found out about it and are punishing her by sending her to the field. Whatever the case may be, in summary, we are given a picture of a woman who has been put to work And as a result, she cannot attend to her own attractiveness. That said, what we have here is a woman who's assertive despite this setback. She's a woman who actually knows what she wants. That's key. She's a woman who knows what she wants. Ian Proven, again, in his commentary, writes, The fact of the matter is that we find in the Song of Songs, and specifically here in chapter 1, a text that challenges all worldviews that insist that women are not fully persons in their own right, and that women must not take initiatives and make free choices about their lives and their loves, and in particular, that they should not display sexual desire and pursue a beloved man with a view to sexual consummation with him. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to be a female. So what do we understand here? She is an assertive woman with character. So for the women in the room, I ask the question, are you focused on building your character? Are you clear about what you want? Or are you wishy-washy with your desires? Are you willing to endure curiosity or scorn and not meet cultural's classic definitions of beauty for the things that you want and that you desire? Do you have a vision for your life? You know, I know I've I've heard that a lot of women are just waiting around for a man. Quit waiting around. Serve God, serve his church, serve the world. You don't need a man to complete you. But this is also a challenge for the men in the room. Is this the type of woman you are looking for? A woman of character? Or are you looking for someone with little or no desires? I was speaking to a single woman uh, in in her early 30s, maybe 30. She told me of some of the reasons that she's been told that she isn't being asked out or isn't dating somebody currently. There's nine, so buckle up. She said, people have told her, I'm too independent, I'm too educated, I'm too financially secure, I'm too strong, too pretty, my walk with the Lord is too strong, I'm too spiritually minded, my spiritual gifts are too strong, no man would be willing to believe that I'd be willing to submit to his authority or his position of leadership in the home. She's been told, you don't need to hide these things, but maybe don't let on about them or tell the guy about them until later on. She's been told these things by older people in her church who likely believe that, well, you know, you're of a certain age. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you married? She's been told these things by some peers, men, and some women. But I hope we can all agree that this is awful. But what it does What it ultimately does is it challenges what men are actually looking for. And what men are looking for are the wrong things. And men, you need to man up and quit playing the field and look for a woman of character. What should our focus be? Our focus should be to grow and mature as individuals before we can grow and mature with somebody else. I meet mean, so many people that are dating. At some point, the guy expresses a disdain in the relationship, and I said, well, you're man enough to get into it. Why aren't you man enough to get out of it? Andy Stanley said at one point, he said, focus on becoming the person that the person that you're looking for is looking for. Our focus should be to grow and mature as individuals before we can grow and mature with somebody else. Verse 7, let's keep going. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? This poem is expressing a desire from this woman to have a, a lunchtime meetup. And she's saying, where are you pasturing your flocks? Where are you going to take your lunch break? I'd love to meet you there. The reference to veil, there is a couple of different suggested interpretations, one of which is that uh, potentially prostitutes at the times veiled themselves in this way, and so she wants to go and meet him to be with her particular lover, the relationship that she is in, but she doesn't want to get confused by the other men that are also shepherding. Um, there's the other view, it's just simply to hide her identity. He responds in a very playful way. If you do not know, almost beautiful among women... Follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherds' tents. (laughs) So he doesn't actually provide a location for their rendezvous. He simply provides instructions. He then says, now this is going to come off as like, you probably wouldn't want to use this unless it was in this context. But I, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, again, this is a compliment in this culture. Guys, I doubt you'll get away with calling a woman a mare. Don't suggest you do that. But within the context, your presence, what he's ultimately saying is your presence is as if a male horse is in the midst of a group of female ones and you're going to cause a distraction and a, and a disruption because you're so beautiful. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Your neck with strings of jewels. Then there's the response of others, potentially the men, other men here. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. The guy here is ultimately celebrating her beauty. Notice she sort of expresses, I'm a little bit cautious about, I don't think I'm as attractive as other women. And he's saying, no, you're beautiful. You're going to distract everybody when you come and hang out. Men, this is a challenge to us. Listen and acknowledge the concerns of your wives and then celebrate her beauty. Make her feel beautiful. Do whatever it takes. Guaranteed, there are marriages represented in this room today where this is not the reality. This is the picture that we're given. This is the vision that God has for human sexuality and for marriage. Celebrate each other. Compliment each other. Make each other feel beautiful regardless, no matter what it takes. No matter how busy you are. Make her feel beautiful. Make time for her. She, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Once again, the woman refers to the man as a king. She's expressing her desire. He is close to her and she intends to arouse him with her scent. Verse 13, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi she's expressing her ongoing intimacy with two affirmation myrrh which was a substance and fragrance also associated with physical love that goes out but also draws back in for intimate embrace and takes residence henna blossoms they also give out a strong pleasant fragrance women of the time may have actually had clusters of these hidden on their bodies henna blossoms it also as you might want to know clusters of them resemble uh, male sexual organs She then mentions the vineyards of Engedi, which was a famous place of fertility, also called the Kid Fountain, a romantic place. These poems are ongoing themes of eroticism and fertility. He responds back, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Once again, maybe a lost compliment in our culture. He is struck by her eyes. They're like doves, which might mean the brightness of them and the quickness of them. She responds, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. She is taken in general by his beauty and then the location of their lug making, an outdoor forest place under cedars and pine. Why just the bedroom? Why not explore? Amen. She goes on. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. She compares herself to two types of flowers. This is an admiration poem and song. He responds, as a lily among branches, so is my love among the young women He responds by celebrating her, pointing to the second comparison she makes, and then highlights her beauty amongst other women. You are essentially the most beautiful person in the room. Men, do your wives feel like they are the most beautiful person in the room to you? She, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Similarly, in response, she compares his beauty to that of other men. Women, does your husband know that he is the most attractive man in the room to you? You'd be surprised how much a man wants to be told that he is attractive. He wants to know. She is also bringing up a couple of themes that he's both good for protection or shade and he's also good for pleasure or taste. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Once again, we have a picture of protection and pleasure. She goes on, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. She is overwhelmed by his love to the point of faintness. She needs sustenance. She is asking for food that will provide strength but also heighten her experience of love because these things have aphrodisiac qualities. Ooh. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. She's lying in her lover's arms. Reminds me of a popular song. Your body is a wonderland. Your body is a wonder brackets. I'll use my hands. Your body is a wonderland. Something about the way your hair falls in your face. I love the shape you take when crawling towards the pillowcase. Woo! You didn't know these were the words? Come on. <laughs> you tell me where to go. And though I might leave to find it, it'll, I'll never let your head hit the bed without my hand behind it. Come on. We're getting weird about Song of Songs that we listen to John Marriage, your body is a wonderland. It's like, oh, well, whatever. What's the point? God's picture of marital love is physical and emotional intimacy. Physical, look what we've seen in the text so far pleasure and consumption are expressed here. Now, while culture has idolized sex, the church has historically demonized sex. And we are called and commissioned to live as both godly and sexual beings. As followers of Jesus, we need to learn to be both at the same time in the context of our marriages and in outside to understand the bounds in which God provides and the good gift that he has waiting for us if we wait. I've heard so many stories from Christian couples who enter into marriage fearful of sex Sex was described to them as bad, and the transition to marriage has been difficult. On the opposite side, I meet with lots of couples who have had sex or have had multiple sexual partners and are sitting there living with regrets and shame. God's picture of marital love is physical intimacy. Husbands and wives, he wants you to be having sex regularly. In week four, the talk's called The Bedroom. So, you know, set your calendars, The Bedroom. But I'm specifically talking about statistics about what marital sex is like these days, both amongst Christians and non. God's picture of marital love is physical intimacy, but then it's also emotional intimacy. This man in the text has made himself known to the woman, and she has made herself known to her man. Protection is expressed by this man. He knows his wife emotionally and seeks to know her emotionally. For you married people, do you know your spouse emotionally? Are you holding anything back from them emotionally? Do they know what's going on for you? Do they know what's in your head? Do they know what's going on at the end of a long week or at the end of a long day? Are you expressing that? Are you letting them in? The text encourages us, let them in. May they know you. And men, guaranteed, if she feels like she knows you better emotionally and you've provided for her emotional needs, she would be more likely to provide for physical needs. Typically the way it works, although somewhat stereotypical, but we will talk about that. As this section closes and as the woman and her lover lie down with one another, she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. As she embraces her lover, she provides a word of caution. Do not hurry, love. Because of the devastating and overempowering results of love, they should ensure that it is awakened only when the timing and the circumstances are right. While we can understand there's great opportunity in love, there is also danger. It is both beautiful and life-giving and dangerous and destructive. And the destructive reality for many, I'm sure sitting here and a day like today after hearing what I've just presented as God's picture of marital love, there's a whole lot of shame. But this is where you need to remember the great reality and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus rescues and restores both the physical and the emotional. Jesus rescues and restores both the physical and the emotional. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9b to 11 Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you just stop there, it would seem like everything's pretty bad. But look what it says. And such were, past tense, some of you, but you were washed You are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. No person, no person is too far gone from the self-sacrificing love of our King Jesus. Restoration is not only possible, it's available. Do you want it? If you're a Christian We must be people who offer this type of grace to a watching world filled with broken individuals who wake up every morning at times and feel shame. Who are we to be to say, well, look at us, we've got it all worked out. When you as a married person aren't having a lot of sex, Scriptures are clear in Romans 8, 1, as Paul writes to the Roman church, reminding them of their salvation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus rescues and restores both our physical brokenness and our emotional brokenness. Friends, our world needs to hear this great good news and this message of restoration and forgiveness from God that he's made a way for you to be next to him. That as he is holy and set apart, our sin cannot be present with him, but he's made a way for us to be with him. And no matter what has happened in the past, no matter what has happened in your past, no matter what you've done, God is good and he wants to restore whatever it is. Whatever it is. So that you can be united with Him. And if God's vision for your life is marriage, that He will restore what that sexuality is going to look like and that physical expression will look like with your spouse forever. That's the great good news. So, as we transition, let's pray. Oh God, you knew how anxious I was and nervous I was for this morning. Because I know that the vision that we are presented here in Song of Songs and the nature of the scriptures is not what our society would like to believe should be the vision for sexuality. But God, if there's something that we're learning as we're watching our culture is that sexuality has boundaries. That sexual intimacy is not just physical, but it's also emotional. You created it this way. You created it as a good way, but you created it for the purpose of a marriage between a man and a wife in monogamous, committed love. So God, I pray that through this series, God, that married people in this room would have actually more sex and would connect more emotionally. And God, that those in this room that are single would press on in their celibacy, understanding the good and perfect gift that you have created. And God, that if you would call anyone in this place, or if singleness is the thing, that we would see that you, Jesus, were single. Then the new heavens and new earth. God, that marriage isn't the thing that's celebrated. It's our union with you. And so God, change our perspectives towards relationships, towards intimacy, towards sexuality. And God, I pray if there's anybody in this room that is feeling shame, that you would rid it by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus. We cast it out as you, Jesus, bring restoration and rescue and renewal and reconciliation to every part of our life. I pray that there would be no shame, and that there would be no condemnation for those in Christ. And I pray if there's anybody in this room that does not acknowledge you as Lord and Savior, who has not committed their lives to following you, that they would do so. And they would grip hold today of this incredible vision for the human experience that you created through your design of us in this world. And God, I pray that you would commission us out as your followers, who would be people of grace, who do not limit what your vision of sexuality is, who does not remove your vision of sexuality, but calls the world to a better vision because what out, what is out there is so destructive and sin destroys lives. So God, may we respond in worship. May we respond trusting you. If there's anybody in this room that is not trusting that what you've created is good, that you would show them that you are good. God, we need you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we respond.